apparently one in five people visit their GP for social issues. This was a, a stat that I found in the British Journal of Gen, uh, General Practice back in 2019. So one in five, that's 20% of people visit their GP for social issues. Clearly GPs aren't trained to deal with social issues, which is why we need alternative services. Now people are living longer, we're, we're in a health crisis, we're in a cost of living crisis. Clearly we need alternative services for people to manage their health and well-being. And that's why today we're talking about the subject of social prescribing. I'm joined by two social prescribing link workers to talk all about this. In a minute, I'll tell you the question we're going to be discussing, but just want to welcome you all to today's episode of The Wellbeing Wire. I'm your host, Jonathan Pittam, wellness educator, and today I'm joined by Sarah Burundi and Sharon Douglas, two social prescribing link workers. Ladies, would you like to tell everyone in 10 seconds why the hell they should listen to you on the subject of social prescribing? Sarah, over to you. Okay, I'll kick off then. Uh, well, social prescribing is uh, an amazing service that helps people um, with long term physical health conditions make those changes and improve um, their lives um, to make them happier and healthier. Nice one, Sarah. And Sharon, why the hell should anyone listen to you on social prescribing? Um, well, Obviously, I echo what Sarah said. Um, we work with a lot of people from different areas of society. Uh, one of the, I guess, the biggest impacts um, is for people that are socially isolated. Having a long-term health condition can make you feel di disenfranchised from society and unable to access services. Our role is to link you in to services and activities that are important and matter to you and have a positive impact on your mental health and well-being. Okay, we're in good hands then. We're in good hands. We're with two people who know what they're talking about when it comes to social prescribing. Because when it comes to this subject now, I know a lot of people feel that it's almost, when it comes to mental health, we probably need an alternative to the medical model. It's not provided those, the results that everyone would have liked. So clearly social prescribing has come along as an idea. Would, would I be right in saying that it's not, you're not social workers, you're not here to replace social workers, you're here to provide an alternative to the, the medical model? Yeah, as you said, we're not, and that's one of the things that we have to obviously speak to clients about as well. Um, we're not social workers, we're not mental health workers, we are social prescribers and we look at the social aspects of someone's life which means that we would look at things like um, diet and exercise. We would look at things like, are they able to look after themselves? Are they able to manage their health conditions well? We look at the dynamics between their families and friends and how their long-term health conditions impact them. We also look at like, um, has their health condition impacted them going to work or engaging in activities? And then obviously some of the solutions and things that we help them to focus on, because social prescribing is very much what matters to that individual and how they can support themselves or learn new ways and of coping and new strategies and also to develop relationships and build friendships. Okay. So it sounds like, yeah, it's very much about empowering the individual to look after themselves. So what would you say, Sarah, how do people respond to that when they come to you and uh, you're their social prescriber link worker, they come to you 
how often do you get people that want you to solve their problems for them? Um, that that can vary. I mean, obviously, everybody is is very different. Um, but um, some clients um, come to us um, and initially are really highly motivated. Yes, I want to sign up. I'd love to go to this group that you mentioned or um, yeah, I'd love to, to do that. Um, and then as you get to know them and build that rapport and build that relationship, sometimes some of that initial motivation can fall away. The beauty with our role is that we can work with somebody from six to 12 months. So any change takes a long time to develop. Um, so sometimes that initial motivation wears off quite quickly um, and you're, you know, you're constantly working with that person to make sure that that motivation and actually what they signed up for and what areas were of well-being that they wanted to focus on is actually the, the right area. And that can actually take time. It, it takes time for to build that relationship and six months is generally when you get to know that person really well and what they said at the beginning of like, yeah, I really want to lose weight. Actually, you then find out six months down the line that actually what's really motivating them or what's really driving them is that they need to sort out perhaps some financial uh, worries or they need some debt advice, um, which is that barrier of stopping them from doing anything else. Other people... Um, you, you get um, a small amount of engagement and it can be that they're incredibly isolated. They can be quite agoraphobic and actually just having a phone call with somebody, it doesn't necessarily have to be face-to-face, -face, can be enough to start that relationship and it can be an incredibly slow burner. Um, and sometimes, again, you don't see that massive change until month eight or nine um where that one person who hasn't been out of their house for two three years all of a sudden well it's not all of a sudden is it? it it's through the support from the social prescriber and some of the groups the online groups and the communities that they've made actually build up that um uh, motivation to be able to attend an event face to face and that's a massive win for us we see that as a as a great good news story that that person has suddenly been able to to get out and start to um, become less socially isolated okay so is it if somebody comes to you and they want to achieve one thing that you said that that objective can shift that goal can shift as time goes on is there a is there a, a definite cutoff point let's say if their objective their goal has shifted a few times within that within 12 months at 12 months that's it then they finish working with you they finish working with their social prescriber but those 12 months that you've worked with them you've introduced them we've been able to link them into various groups societies other support networks that that they've now got and we like to use the term it's never goodbye with social prescribing it's more see you around because if we've been able to build that relationship and have signposted them into a group where they feel happy that group is um hopefully sustainable and will continue um so our part is 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 like you know we've we've finished with them at 12 months but we're not walking away completely um but in by that time they've created those friendships groups they've got the support that that they need and they move on from there 
Okay. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay. So as part of the discussion then, so we're, on a, we're talking about potentially what could be the future of social prescribed. We're going we're gonna to start talking about the mechanics, a bit about how it works at the moment, which we've been talking about. Then we're going to move on to some success stories. Cause I'd love to hear some successes that you've had with people in the, the local area. And then finally, we'll talk about any ideas of what it could look like going into the future. So uh, Sharon, do you want to just tell me, give me an example of uh, the average person that might come to see you and what sort of problems they might talk about and what things they might have tried before yeah um i'd like to say there is no average person because each person is really unique and you could have the same five people or a room of people that have had the same experience but the impact has been very differently so we have um to be referred into our service you need to have one or more long-term health conditions so for most people, they'll have one, but for quite a few people, they'll have multiple health conditions. And those health conditions could be that someone has had a heart event, they've got COPD, they've got asthma, fibromyalgia. We work a lot with clients that have challenges around managing their pain. And as a result of that, and I guess we'll, we'll, we'll go into that a, a bit further on, is that we've been able then to develop service services. So we have a chronic pain management group. And that's the beauty. So social prescribing is open to everyone with a health condition. But the beauty of that is that because it's an open service, we've been able, we've been able then to tailor make groups to fit the needs of the clients coming in. Those groups were not available. It's only, obviously, it's a growing service. More people come in, then we're like, okay, right, okay, we need to develop these groups. So that's been one of the most really amazing things. We have clients that may have mobility issues. And again, so with each client, there may be a presenting set, set of circumstances and factors. And then as part of our role, it's then how to determine so that people are having equal opportunities in their communities and that they can access this, the groups and services that are available, how can we then work with those clients? So for yeah. instance, somebody has a mobility issue and there are organisations um, in that um, are able to provide transport for some clients to get to groups and activities. So, you know, it's, I'd say no, no day is the same day. Mm. And no client is the same client. They come to us, we do assessments to find out. We use something that's called a well-being star, and that looks at all of the different areas of life that impact on, on well-being. And then we work with the client. And I just want to link it back into the question that you were asking, Sarah. So when a client comes to us, they have around three different actions um, that they decide on in our first meeting that they are working towards. And again, linking it back in, so a client may have one um, action that they're working on and that could take them six months to do that. Other clients come in and they've done that in a matter of weeks. It just really depends. But those three actions usually take them to the end of the programme. And if some people are able, they might actually have more actions than that to complete depending on what they are and you so you called it a plan did you is it what was the name of the plan sorry you mentioned well we have what's known as a well-being star and the well-being star looks at eight different areas of a person's life that impacts 
okay. their um, well-being yeah. as well. So um, I would name some of them a bit earlier. And then we, out of that assessment, will come three actions that matter to the client. They need to matter to the client because if we were choosing their actions, then they wouldn't be able to take ownership of that. So the ownership is really important. And a way of determining the ownership is we use motivational interviewing, which is asking questions of the client about why they're engaging in social um, prescribing, what's really important to them, what challenges have they faced before, but similarly, what have they used before in order them to, you know, in order to support them move through really challenging and difficult situations. So that is a really key part of it. So it's so it's very coaching based. Then somebody comes to you. It's not, yeah. and th- this is the thing we find in a lot of businesses. It's somebody goes to see a manager when they're struggling. The manager says, "Why don't you do this? Here's what you need to do. You need to go and do that, or go and see your GP." Which is very tell based. And I guess I probably don't have to t- tell you guys this, but you'd know that you know when somebody's giving advice. If the advice works, the person will come back to you again. If the advice is rubbish, the person will blame you. So you, you're very much coming from a, a, a yeah. coaching, a asking basis rather than a tell, telling basis. Sarah, how do you find people respond to that when you're in that situation? When you're, you're there with them, you're, you're going through the well-being star, you're trying to uh, come up with these actions or co-come up with these actions. How do people find respond to the asking approach rather than being told? Again, that comes very much down to the individual. You have some individuals that realise that actually I'm feeling empowered almost straight away because they just perhaps need a bit of a gentle nudge to sort of say, have you thought about this? Or tell me about something that you used to really love doing that brought you joy and that you'd like to get involved in again. Some of those open questions. And that automatically gets them thinking and bang, they're, they're onto it. Other people, as I sort of mentioned before, um, it's brand new to them. They've, they're, you know, the, the GP culture, they're used to going to a GP or a nurse or the hospital and being told, this is what you need to do. So for some of them, it is very, very tricky to say, oh, so you're not telling me what I've got to do. Uh, you're asking me, which for some people is immense and they they do struggle sometimes with that and and they're going no but I'd like you to do do this and you, ha- you again you have to be um quite you know uh for upfront and and forceful and and go back to them um and be you know be a bit of a critical friend to say you know well this is about you and what you want to achieve and it's empowering you so that can be a journey on its by itself yeah yeah i can Im- i can imagine i can imagine because i think a lot of time it feels like the easy route is for somebody to tell us what to do and <laughs> what i like about what you're talking about here is let's say typically someone who might have been feeling feeling depressed might have gone let's say 10 years ago to their GP and they're told they have a chemical imbalance in their brain and they're prescribed something and obviously I'm not criticizing medication it has a place here but that that was the approach you you were told you had a chemical imbalance and here's what you need to take to get rid of that where or to manage that whereas what you're looking at is all of the different things that could have been possible contributors to that person feeling that way, as opposed to something faulty in their brain, you're looking at, um, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, uh, what's gone wrong in that person's life that we need to rebalance rather than chemical balancing chemicals in brains, you're trying to rebalance people's lives. Would that be, would that be a correct uh, assessment, Sharon? 
Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it was. I mean, we, as as Sarah said, and you've said, we, we, even though we sit within a medical model because the GPs are making those referrals, we're not medic, we're not medicalizing clients as they come through. So, the areas of someone lies are really impactful. But I think one of the most important things to remember is that there are quite a lot of people that we. We also work with that have come from trauma-informed backgrounds and have been maybe part of different services and now have come to a point in their journey where they, as Sarah said, we're, use, we're using motivation, we're using coaching. We're allowing a space for that person maybe for the first time to really think about a lot of those areas that have impacted their life and actually how they then start to carve a path forward. Um, it's not, an, it's it can be really challenging and difficult for people because they then have to then start to think for themselves for the very first time in their life and also think about things that they have never had to think to before, think about before. So that is really difficult. And, and the beauty of social prescribing is, is that we have access and we can link people to the organisations that will support them on that journey. And we're not saying that that's a linear journey because, you know, people are human and for every step that they take, some clients might take some steps backwards, but we're there to walk with them along that journey for the six or 12 months that they are within our service. Okay. One of the things that I would like to say, which we haven't said, is that we are community-based social prescribers. So we work with clients in a different way than a social prescribing link worker when, within um, a surgery. As a community-based social prescriber, we can work with somebody up to 12 months. In a surgery, it sits around three months. Yeah. So that means they have a much longer amount of time to I guess it's a bit you know to to to, to I guess to move through their experience yeah and I get because I guess there's so yeah every, as Sarah said before everybody's different everybody has their unique life situation and problems and I guess to assume that we can get through that what with them in, in 12 weeks is quite a big ask isn't it whereas you you've got 12 yeah. months and I think it ties back into I think it was you Sarah talked about loneliness before as well now I imagine that 12 months you allowed to be, you're able to build trust and build a relationship which I imagine in itself has a positive impact on people's lives have, have you noticed that at all? Because we know that, you know, over the, the past few years, people have really struggled, people who are isolated or live on their own. So I guess having somebody like you that they know is in their corner has a massive positive impact. Would that be correct, Sarah? Uh, absolutely. And um, that's one of the um, amazing things about this job is that we regularly share those studies those case studies and those good news stories with with the team um because that's why we do the job um we we have stories coming out of our, our heads and um <laughs> you sort of talk, sort of mentioning about somebody being in isolation we were only talking about that last week in one of our team meetings um we were sharing sort of good news stories that have happened over the last couple of weeks a couple of months um and you know 
just to talk about one in particular, Sharon, I'm, I know has um, some great stories, is that we've had a gentleman that was isolated for two years, had incredibly um, um, various um, difficulty uh, with his physical health conditions, quite serious health conditions. And, and because of that, was incredibly isolated and very anxious um, to, you know, he'd just not been outside of the house. And through one of our um, support workers, we were able to work with him to get him onto a diabetes cohort. Um, but it took a lot for him just to turn up to get to through the door to the first meeting. Um, and if our if our if our community worker hadn't been on the end of the phone, just to naturally sort of encourage him and say, "I'll be there and I'll be out in the car park and I'll meet you and all this sort of stuff." That was just to get him into the room. Six weeks through the the course, he uh, started to turn it back into the amazing gentleman that he was before. And after 12 months, he is now out every day. He's that busy. He, um, he He's had to buy himself a diary. That is something that He'd never thought he'd do because he's just so busy with uh, um, his activities. But more importantly for him and his family, up until then, he, you know, even his family had sort of given up a little bit with him because he had nothing to say. He didn't never went anywhere and he retreated into himself. Um, his family have noticed that difference. His wife, his children, you know, they've said, you've brought our dad back. Um where he was he was lost um and it that is you know um, a very brief detailed of, of 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 what we do and why we do it okay so it sounds like yeah i can imagine you've got lots of success stories like the gentleman there if you were to pick out a handful of ingredients uh and i'll put this to both of you a handful of ingredients that you think are the determining factors when when it works like it did for that gentleman What's the secret sauce there? Because that wouldn't have happened without your input. So what would you say? If you were to pick between one and three things you think that make the difference between that person being able to rebuild their life, what do you think those ingredients are? Sharon, what would you say? I would say being listened to. I think we have lots of clients that it's the first time, I think we'll all say this, but I would say for the majority of clients that they have felt heard. So that is definitely a key ingredient and they're able to tell their stories and they're also able to say what they want. Now that might seem quite simple, but for a lot of our clients, they've never said no. Mm. They've never said no. They're uncertain of who their identity is. Um, I would say patience as well because a lot of clients communicate that actually I'm always being rushed, I'm always being hurried. So patience is one, to time, patience, or time being heard and patience. Okay, that's interesting. That's, and, and Sarah, I'm gonna put that before we come back and sort of go into those a bit more. So what would you pick if you were to pick uh, your, your magic ingredients? What would you say to, to build on what Sharon said? Um, I, I would say it's, it's that, human to human contact so it's um as a as a link worker 
apart from all the amazing skills that Sharon has said, it's about being able to build that rapport. So when you're actively listening to that patient, that client, and picking out something that you can really build that rapport on. So that person to person, you know, it doesn't, you, you don't have a, a job title. You're just a person talking to another person and listening to another person. So those soft skills are really important. Um, I And at times there is that being that sort of critical friend of actually being being able to be assertive to say, you know, you said that you wanted to, to do this, you know, how are you going to do this? We've we've been able to do X, Y, and Z, but there's still that barrier. What is is stopping you? And giving them that, being able to give them that that focus. And that's what we mean about that that gentle push. And sometimes it is a little bit of a shove. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> to, 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 to gently get that person to, to decide it's all right. What is the worst that can, that can happen? So, yeah. Okay. Okay. So we've got some really interesting ingredients there. So in our little goodies bag, so we've got people being listened to and heard. We've got people actually getting to say what they want, mm -hmm. uh, patients, uh, that human to human contact, the building rapport, and actually that critical friend, I guess, essentially it's like a coach, isn't it? A coach yes. just be asking, you're trying to get them to commit to things. So mm -hmm. let's, some of those, they all really jumped out at me. And I think what you said a moment ago, Sharon, about being asked what they want, um, that's really interesting because a lot of time, a lot of people might not know what they want because they've never been asked it and therefore they've never contemplated it. So I guess having someone asking, where do you want to be? How would you like your life to be? It's amazing how often we can't see the woods for the trees because we're so mired down in what's going on in our lives. We haven't thought how we would like our life to be. So I imagine that's a really refreshing thing for a lot of people to say. What's, what sort of response do you get when you ask that question, Sharon? Do, you, do people, do you often get people surprised? Uh, yeah, I think a lot of the time you get people that are surprised. There's usually a bit of silence and you can just hear the cogs turning. Like, oh, you've just <laughs> asked me what's important to me. Oh, well, mm, do you know what? I've never really thought about that. Okay, well, let's think about it then. So, yeah, so it is, it, 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 it is it, I guess it's a, it's a bit of a showstopper one, I would say. Mm. Um, and, you know, then once people get, once I think you have to give people clues. You know, so I'll ask them, oh, what did you do in, you know, when you were younger? What did you like to do? Mm -hmm. And so it's like connecting people back to a part of their life when they may be younger or freer. And then they might say things like, well, do you know what? I really enjoyed, you know, whether it's poetry or I really enjoyed, you know, going swimming or, or it, you know, so it takes them back to a place which actually, if you take people back to places that have good feelings, then they can bring that into the present. And then that's a starting point because it reignites the, the thought and the feeling of something that they really want to do. And that's a starting point. Yeah. And, and I, I imagine most people wouldn't take themselves on that mental journey alone we're not going to usually sit and think how would I like my life to be or what am I when was the what was the happiest yeah. moment of my life but I guess if they're sat there with yourselves playing that role of critical coach as you said Sarah they're they're going to go on that exploratory journey so what what do you find when when it comes to that that coaching side of things because I think that's that's so important have you found it an easy thing to do are you a naturally an asker are you a natural coach 
Yeah, I mean, I've had lots of different roles. I've done training before. I used to um, train uh, healthcare professionals and patients on how to use medical devices. And so, and also I think for this role, I think you as a person need to be curious. You just and read I my think mind. that's the thing. Yeah, it's about <laughs> being so. curious. Okay. And then that, and also, then that enables the client to start being curious about where they are. And for a lot of clients, even though they have family and friends, they actually can feel really isolated because of their health condition as well. So I guess it's about them building their own inner strength and finding resilience in their own resources. That's a really important part of social prescribing because it does enable people, it enables them to build resilience. And once somebody starts to build resilience, then they start to feel more confident in their abilities and they'll want to try different things. So we're in the position of saying, oh, how about this? How about that? But then the clients then come and say, well, actually, I've just found this thing. How about this? Mm. And when that moment happens, it's just really amazing because because you just say, oh, my God. And I have so many, oh, my gosh, moments, <laughs> you know, because clients, you know, they're absolutely phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. I've seen things and I've seen lots of different things within my career, but I've seen things in social prescribing and that gentleman was was one example of lots of examples of people that you know have grown. They've just yeah. they you know they've come to you like a little seed. You know we're in the germination room, we're putting all these good things in, and then this plant, this really strong plant, starts to grow. It's phenomenal. Well, that's really I like the analogy there. So let's 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 continue. Let's stretch that analogy then of the seed germinating. Because I so the ingredients there, you're you're providing the the warmth, the moisture, the light. Well, I guess the seed doesn't technically need light to germinate. The seedling does. But anyway, so we're providing those critical ingredients for it to to it to for it to germinate and become a, a strong seedling. Would you once people have got to that point, then say, would you say? What what is it that goes in to help them sustain that then? So you've you've taken them through this process, they've they've explored how they'd like their life to be, they've chosen their actions from their well-being star, they've gone out and done these things. How do you make sure or how do you facilitate them continuing that journey upwards? I think sustainability um is absolutely the, the key there. Um and there's different ways. Oh, Sharon's disappeared. Um, there's different ways um, that, again, depending on clients, how how that works. Yeah. Um, and you, you, you know, we talk about like the focus, and it's focusing on them and what they've been able to achieve, um, and getting them to move that focus from what they can't do to what yeah. they have done or what they they will do. So, um, moving forward again, like. You know, Sharon using that analogy about grow the grow model is a is a obviously a coaching model that yeah. we use, and it's also it's like so you know where where you've got to it's like um, you know what support going forward do you think you need you know how will you get that support etc. It's key questions like that, but also within social prescribing we have so many different opportunities. So particularly if somebody is really keen on for instance joining a, a swimming group to help us sustain that group 
because they've got so much joy and pleasure out of that, if they're in the right mindset, they might want to volunteer to take on the register, to make newcomers feel welcome. So again, they're giving back. It's their chance to give back to the service what they got out of it and to enable that particular part of the service to continue to grow and continue to achieve and support those people going forward. So volunteering is a is a key part and that volunteering as well in turn can also support people if they wish to get back into employment um okay. so we work with so many different stakeholders um that the volunteering pathway is so important and is a key part of spring itself okay so you could almost say that the volunteering bit is like the gateway drug to sustainability <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that gateway drug. <laughs> so it sounds like I'm, it, this is so holistic sounding. And let's, I mean, if we go back to, I think it was 2017, there was a global review of GP waiting times. I think the UK was something, we sat around the middle, it was around nine minutes, 20 seconds or something, which isn't long. Clearly you can't achieve, a GP couldn't achieve in that time what you can achieve in this time. So I guess that's why it's very much prescribed, 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 because it's so time limited. Whereas you've got time to explore and not only that, I think something you mentioned before, Sharon, you've got time to bespoke things for people as well. So I guess if you get a certain critical mass of people wanting to do a certain thing, you can go out there and develop that. Could you tell me a bit more about that and maybe give me an example of something that you've uh, you've developed? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, what Sarah hasn't told you is that um, she is going on to be our community development worker. Sarah's developed quite a few groups within the community. Um, and that's also working in co-production. Um, there's, uh, there's a, I guess, an organisation called Pearls of Peace, um, and they meet within the Doddridge Centre. And uh, Sarah, as part of our, we call it developing assets. So going out and meeting um, organisations, and in the in Northampton and building relationships where we can work in co-production. So prior to that, one of our team, um, um, Jill Harrison, one of the SBLWs, an acronym for, for what we do, um, she um, developed the first swimming group, Water for Wellbeing. So clients would come along, I think it was for around four weeks. And we had a lot of clients that really wanted to go swimming and but they were really apprehensive and scared so that that first group was created by Jill and then Sarah has gone on to develop it so it's something that we do in co-production and it's for women a women's group and that um is working that also is inclusive of other inclusive should I say of other cultural communities so we're working in creating a more inclusive um yeah more inclusivity within the groups that we run at spring and that has been absolutely phenomenal Mm. and so much so that we have a waiting list um because it's there aren't that many groups for women in Northampton so that's been one of the big achievements that we have there's also a men's group which was done in co-production with um, Pete Chapman and a previous colleague that we used to work with and they developed a men's group um, in Northampton and again by creating groups where people can go to 
you asked us what were some of the important ingredients of social prescribing. And one of the main importance of social prescribing obviously is groups, but it's having that peer support. So having people that have gone through similar experiences as you has been one of the most powerful experiences, the clients that we have. We're also working in partnership with the GP surgeries and we have run, we're about to run our fourth diabetes wellbeing group. And that has, again, all of these things, and I talk like this because the inception of something and then you see it develop and then you see the positive experiences that people have had because they've had that peer-to-peer interaction so that they feel united. Again, they feel heard because, again, as I was saying, family and friends don't always understand what we are going through. But to sit in a room or to be with people that have a long-term condition, similar or different to yourself, and you can just be yourself and you don't have to pretend. And then they give you advice and guidance. And then you see people's lives start to change because they're listening to someone who they feel that, oh, this person understands me, they get me. It's obviously they listen to their GPs, but peer listening, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's priceless. So with that, because, yeah, that's a really interesting point you've touched on there, this whole peer peer support idea, because I guess – in my experience, you know, being in the corporate world, you, you might find a lot of people won't want to speak to their manager about a struggle, let's say with their mental health, because they might feel shame, they might feel, oh, it's a sign of weakness, there's something wrong with them. But then when they know there's someone in, that, that's been through that as well, for example, if that manager had been through something as well, and that manager maybe showed a bit of vulnerability, so well, actually, I've been a bit depressed myself, I felt like I didn't want to be here at one point, suddenly, that person feels comfortable and safe enough to speak about it, because they know, well, if they've taught, said it's okay, then it's okay for me to talk about it as well. So I can see the benefit of this peer side of things. Let, let's move into the, it sounds like social prescribing does a great job. The innovation around it, the creativity you're allowed to infuse into what you do, the way you build relationships with people. How do we take this into the future then? Uh, there's the idea, we talked before we came on air about workplaces. What If you could, let's say, I imagine from the excitement that in your voices, you both think, uh, social prescribing, you give it a nine out of 10. What would take, if you could do one thing to take it to a 10 in terms of how amazing you think it is, what would each of you add to it? Sarah, what would be your thing that you'd take it from a nine to a 10, Sarah? I just think uh, just to to roll out um, the opportunities um, that we're able to offer people um without necessarily people having to refer into the into the gp so taking it to the to schools to young people is key i know that is being worked on at the moment and we we have a colleague who's working on the 14 to 18 year old particularly because we know how much that age group have not only suffered with lockdown etc but we know that mental health in that particular age bracket um is a hot topic at the moment so definitely to take it into schools and have it on the agenda um would that be having a a a social prescriber in a school okay Okay, mm-hmm. so we'd have that because I know schools have counsellors, don't they? But they have counsellors more... and they have pastoral care. Um, but do we do they actually look at it holistically, or does that young person 
go to that counsellor uh, and deal with one particular topic. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's it. And then they've had the time with the counsellor and that's it without looking at them holistically. Okay, okay. We're on to something now. Now we're starting to build something for the future. So we're talking about schools. Um, Sharon, before we came on air, you talked about businesses. What would that look like for you in a bit? In, if if we had, um, and just to rewind a bit, you, you you said SPLW. That's just for everyone listening. Social prescribing link worker. If I'm correct. Yeah. Okay. You are. Right. So, what would it look like? Would it be a SPLW in the workplace? What would that look like to you, Sarah? Sharon, sorry. What's your vision? I think. I think. Yeah. I think. I mean. Absolutely. You don't need to change the title because I just think it's such a transferable job and it, you know, it could sit, as I said, within a health and wellbeing department, which actually sits within human resources. And again, the same as we have clients in the workplace, you know, a person at work, an employer, uh, and an employee, both the employer and the employee, no one's exempt, you know, would have access to a social prescriber so that if there were errors within their life that were impacting them or in work, then actually they could seek that support within the workplace. And I also think on sort of like maybe a world domination takeover, <laughs> then I, <laughs> it would sit everywhere. And then also, even within the NHS, I think we need social prescribers to sit within the NHS so that people within the NHS and, you know, other organisations that focus on health have access to it as well. And would you would you see this as there's, there's counsellors in the NHS and the counselling schools, counsellors in businesses? Would you see it as counsellors should be trained to be social prescribers or would you have separate social prescribers to the counsellors? I would, um, I think everybody has a skill set that they mm -hmm. they have. We refer to counsellors because we're not counsellors ourselves. So professionals are there and they have been trained in that particular um, profession. Yeah. Our role would be to sit alongside as we do now um, so that people, and as you said, it's creating an holistic service. Yeah. So social prescribing would sit along other services and be part of that holistic service. Yeah, that sounds sounds good. What have we missed? Anything we've got? We talked about schools. We talked about businesses. We talked about in the NHS. Something like religious communities, like in churches and mosques. You know, things that I think everybody could benefit from the, these services. Are we? Is there anything we've missed? Do you think? Um, I, 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 like world domination everywhere, really. <laughs> yeah, I think everywhere. we're trying, think, aren't we, Sharon? We're yeah. trying. We, we've started off in Northampton, but we will yeah. take over the world eventually. Okay, yeah. you, you both need a cat on your lap, you know, like a Bond villain to be stroking a cat <laughs> as you're talking about world domination. What about this? Okay, so we talked about schools, businesses, and just to just to elaborate on that schools thing for a moment, because I have a big thing about. Um, kids health you know young people's mm -hmm. health and I think PE at school is physical education but there's no t t talk of sleep in there there's no talk of um, nutrition so it's it's just got my school was we go out and play rugby or we go out and play hockey but 
physical education is about so much more than just exercise. I think the problems we have mostly uh, in terms of kids out is around their diets. You know, the sort of things we're eating at the moment, these highly processed, ultra processed junk foods, uh, people's blood sugars are able to go up and down like no time it's ever been able to in history, which leads to all sorts of problems like insulin resistance. So yeah, I think incorporating this into that, I think it, the educational piece is so important. Let's let's jump in the time machine and let's go forward 10 years. You've got a social prescriber in every school. You've got one in businesses. You've got one in churches, in the NHS. We've got one there. How does that look to you now? Have you achieved your global domination plan? Is what? What does that look like? What's the health status of people right like at that point, 10 years into the future? Sarah? Oh, I, I mean, I think you're getting into like uh, government strategy here, aren't you? Which is always a hot potato. Because uh, this is kind of like what they were talking about years ago when they talked about the big society. Um, and it, it comes back down to sort of community based and people feeling comfortable, feeling um um wanting to to do that that volunteering but actually in to enable that to happen there's a few more steps that that have to to go you know that you have to go down to create to create that co-creation for it to know to happen and some barriers to go um away so um it's removing some of those those barriers um which we, which you know we're we're constantly trying to do so you know going back to the present day at the moment you know it's education and it might be um giving um off offering english lessons for um people who have english as a second language um and the colleges offer offer it but actually the barrier sometimes is people in their communities don't feel that they can access that at the moment so to me it would be taking away some of those barriers that the schools or the education authorities come into those communities and deliver those services within those communities yeah. which you know starts that that education process okay. um so i would like to see some of those current barriers completely um disappeared in an ideal yeah. world and I think actually, as as you're speaking there, what what came to mind was the idea that you, the great work that you do and the the data that I guess you obtain from the barriers that people are facing should help to direct efforts and resources towards removing those barriers. Let's say if I don't know, eighty percent of people come to you because they're mm -hmm. feeling lonely or because they have economic problems. Mm -hmm. Clearly, it means we need to be directing more money and re or resources towards, um, you know, lowering those economic barriers. Uh, Sharon, how about yourself then? you're in the future you've jumped in the delorean we're 10 10 years down the we're in 2033 um well you won't be in the delorean because you won't be able to drive a diesel or a petrol car there. <laughs> but you're in the delorean how do you've got all these things in place schools businesses the nhs it's all in place with social prescribing have you achieved your objective i don't think you ever achieve your objective because things change so I think it's about creating a strong foundation for services to continue to grow. And that's also about embedding a philosophy about the way in which we can live our lives. And I think that's not something you can tell people to do. It's like Sarah said, it's about cultivating the education and also having spaces where these are, you know, these the oldest word. Um, so these conversations can take place. So it's keeping it in the minds of of people. And I think sometimes 
we don't do that. You know, we we reach an objective or we, like I was saying previously, okay, services are brought about for a finite amount of time and then those services are then withdrawn. But how do you keep something continuing if you take something away? Okay. So it's not being complacent. Yeah. It's about staying, remained engaged and encouraging. Yeah. So I guess that's it. Almost like plates spinning. I guess plates aren't going to keep spinning themselves. We've got to keep them spinning. Well, we've yeah. talked, so we talked about how social prescribing looks at the moment. We've talked about some success stories. We talked a bit about the future. The final thing I want to ask you both for your perspective on is now for me working within wellness, I've been wellness for, for a number of years. And for me, the biggest thing, the most important thing, and I think it's a philosophy that came from, from China. I think it was the original Chinese philosophy on health. It was, I think you, you only pay your doctor, you pay so you don't pay your doctor if you're if you're well or something along those lines anyway but it's essentially it's prevention it's you staying healthy so we don't have any of these problems you know these diseases of affluence like type 2 diabetes and all sorts of things so you guys want the reactive end because people come to you because there's a problem already arisen um not not to prevent a problem so how would you see yourselves merging with what i'm talking about in schools the education around sleep light exposure nutrition all of that stuff how could you make it even more holistic so you're working with the preventative people as well what would you how would that look to you possibly we do that all, we do that already because um, we can link people into those types of services. And I think for um, a lot of the clients that we work with, they may have um, an existing health condition, but by linking them into other groups and activities, so for instance, we work with Fitness Without Boundaries, and um, uh, the person, Raphael, who runs the gym, he is a qualified physiotherapist, and he has also written, well, he has a doctorate, in the subject around exercise and physiology as well. So part of the ethos is really thinking about where somebody is with their health condition and actually some of the changes that they can make that will positively impact it, but then also working on a preventative model for some people. For some people, it will be continual because that is the nature of the condition. Yeah. But then for other people, they can be doing things to prevent it from getting worse. So most people that we work with have conditions that mm. they're not going to regress, but by managing the condition, they can prevent it from becoming worse. Okay. And actually, as you're speaking there, you've given me an idea and I'm going to put it to you two at the end. And it's going to add so much to your workload, by the way, but <laughs> <laughs> see what you think anyway. Uh, Sarah, how about yourself? What would you see? How would you see it coming coming together with a preventative model as well? Could you, is that possible? Do you see, could it, you see it merging? So, because I guess the idea of even preventing people having any issues in the first place is what I'm kind of getting at. Is there a way that that could be merged in with social prescribing in any vision form that you could imagine I, I, and again i think that that comes back down to to education uh, and uh and government um and you know we know schools and teachers are uh, under a lot of stress to sort of hit curriculum but so much has been stripped away and uh well-being is so prevalent and and good well-being and healthy well-being that really needs to be um high on on the agenda so um i see that as a as a gradual um 
extension uh, of our role through the education of young people. Um, and that can start, you know, right from nursery, right through through school and then into the workplace. So it's that, to me, that holistic view needs to go like from cradle to grave. That is the yeah. prevention. That's how I, how I see it. Uh, where we are at the moment, um, uh, to give an example, uh, a real example is somebody that came on the diabetes uh, course. They upskilled themselves about their own illness. They realized that they had choices. They listened to their peers and listened to what they had to say. The upshot of it is that when they went back into the nurse for their review, which would happen every, I don't know, six months or so, the nurse said, we are, they came back and told me, oh, I've tried this. Have you heard about this? And she said it wasn't me having to tell them about anything. They were engaged. They wanted to change. They knew that they can change. And to me, that that is the power. That's what that's what the GP said. That is that empowerment right there. The nurse, she said, please keep doing what you're doing because I've never had people coming in saying, oh, I found out about this and I've done this and I've done that. This person was fully engaged purely through the peer support group, the co-production and us able to give them that, you know, Brilliant. that experience in the first place. Well, just as you were talking there, I wrote in big letters on my bit of paper, ownership. I think that's mm -hmm. what you're uh, creating in people, that ownership of their health and well-being. Because so many of us don't choose to own our well-being. But I think having the inspiration of people like yourselves, I think is really important. Uh, you completely stole my thunder because you actually got the idea that I was thinking of about the educational piece. So clearly I wasn't being anywhere near as clever <laughs> as I thought. <laughs> so we've talked about some really interesting stuff. So we talked about, first of all, what social prescribing, how it currently works at the moment, how people come to you and you go through a well-being star, which is a, a, a process that helps them to come up with areas of their life that they want to work on and then choose those actions from that um also interestingly how you bespoke things for services that are in demand i think which is brilliant because again the standard model would be somebody goes to their gp and they're given a prescribed route to go down it's very fixed very rigid whereas you're very exploratory which i think is really good talks about some excellent excellent success stories like the gentleman who couldn't leave his house at one point and how his family felt that you turned his life around which i think was was absolutely brilliant and we've talked about the future we got an idolore in and we've talked about schools businesses the nhs all of these ways where we could insert social prescribers and for me I really, as you were both speaking, I thought, this is so good. You're such inspiring people. You clearly love what you're doing. You're you know, smiling as you're talking, lighting up as you talk about it, which is great to see. And it'd be great to have people like yourselves out there providing that educational piece. This is where I add work to your workload, because I think you, you're so inspiring to have you out there in the schools, in the NHS, in the businesses, talking about health, well-being and all these social factors to inspire people to take ownership of their own lives, I think would be a, a fantastic movement. And I'm sure it'd be very successful moving into the future. Sarah and Sharon, just before we wrap up, if you I always ask people this question, if you had the, the nation's advice, attention you're on the six o'clock news tonight whichever channel you choose you've got one minute to address the nation what would you say to everyone in the context of our conversation today if you could just grab their ear for one minute what would each of you say and i'm going to ask you first sharon oh that's a really hard question really i think the first thing that came to mind would yeah I don't know. I, I don't know. You might need to go to Sarah because that's really a hard question. Or would really. you even ask them a question? You could ask them a question. Or 
is there a is there a quote that comes to you when in the context of your work as you're working is there is there a quote that guides you or something or an inspirational person what keeps you going what keeps you going i just i i think it's just having belief and having hope and i think there's a lot of lost hope out there and i think we have to believe if you know i think we all need to believe in each other and that most things are possible with the right support and encouragement. I think with what you, you both do as well, you are injecting hope into people that stimulating their imagination, think of better times and a better future. I think you are injecting mm. that hope in people. So how about yourself? You're on the news. Let's go, let's go to ITV. You're on the news. You've got one minute to address the nation. What would you say? Okay, so I'm going to cheat massively here and actually use somebody else's quote because generally they've already sussed it out. So um, <laughs> it's Maya Angelou um, who always does amazing quotes. And I'm just going to quote one here. It's like, her mission. my mission in life is not merely to survive, but to thrive and to do so with some passion, some compassion, some humour and some style. So I think that kind of wraps up what social describing um, is about. And perhaps Maya had that uh, that DeLorean and went forward <laughs> in the future and actually thought that's what that's what she's talking about. Well, I think it's always good to end on a bit of Maya Angelou. I'm going to throw a bit of Maya Angelou tennis back at you and say, it's people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but they'll always remember how you made, how them, you made feel. them feel. Yeah. And I think for the, what you're doing is changing how people changing people's lives and therefore changing how they feel. So clearly they're always going to remember you. You've been a fascinating pair of guests. It's been really, really interesting talking to you. I imagine in 10 years' time when everybody has implemented your ideas about schools, the NHS, all of these things, the world will be a better place uh, thanks to social prescribing and people like yourselves. Sharon, Sarah, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the Wellbeing Wire as my guest. Um, can you tell people where they could find out a bit more about you and, uh, and the organisation you work for? Um, yeah, so we work for Spring, which is uh, social prescribing in Northamptonshire. So we're across the county. Um, myself and Sharon uh, primarily work in the community based in the borough of Northampton. But we also um, have partners who are based in the sort of south uh, down to Toaster and up to uh, Daventry and then partners in the eastern and north up to Kettering and, and Corby. So we're, um, you can find us through our the General Practice Alliance website and also there is a Spring Northamptonshire website which is uh, basically EGIP in Spring Northamptonshire and that will find us. Brilliant. That will tell you all about us um, and uh, and how people can refer into the service. Excellent. Thank you. And can we can we just finish? Could you just repeat your Maya Angelou quote? Let's just finish on that note, please, if you're happy to do so, Sarah. OK. Uh, my mission in life is not merely to survive, but to thrive and to do so with some passion, some compassion, some humour and some style. Well said. We don't need to add any more. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Sharon. Uh, Thank you. Guest, hopefully you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. I look forward to speaking to you all on the next episode of The Wellbeing Wire. Sharon, Sarah, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.